Well, good morning and uh, welcome, happy Advent, greetings to those joining us upstairs and at uh, Crossroads and at Highland Park. So when I was seven, um, my great aunt Ruth gave me a billfold for Christmas. And as gifts go, it was better than a sweater or underwear, but not much. Uh, I was seven. I wanted, I think, a tank, a mini bike, a gun, uh, a chainsaw. Uh, I was getting none of those things. I got a billfold. And so I was gracious. I, I well coached. I thanked her, set it down, and waited for my next turn to open a present. And my dad, after some other people were open presents, my dad called me over. And he says, let me see your billfold. And he looked at it, and he said, you got to look at this again. And so I looked at it, and I discovered that in the billfold was a $20 bill, which significantly increased my net worth at the time. <laughs> and now I was much happier with the present. And uh, I just want to say, there are presents that we get that uh, are not as good as we think, but there are also presents that we get that are better than we understand at the time. And I want to argue in this series that is going to unfold that Jesus is better than we understand. <laughs> and he's a present that the more we look at, the more we see that there is more there. Uh, I have been known uh, to whine at this time of year, uh, rather unseemly of me, especially since I whine about Advent sermons. And what I whine about is that it's really hard to figure out how to get any sort of fresh angle at this story that has been told and retold and retold and retold. And, and I feel some obligation to, to, to bring something new to light that is engaging, and it's, it's, it's a surprising challenge of the job. Well, this year I will not be whining because this past summer I had a really rich a uh, series of weeks devotionally looking at Jesus. And uh, I don't want to suggest that all my devotional times are rich and easy. Sometimes it's a lot of times. It's just sort of, it's a discipline to get up and to pray and to read and to, and to reflect and to journal. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's just a, it, it's a discipline. It takes effort. But sometimes it's just, just you get carried away. And there was a good long run where it was just easy and fun. And, and it took me in a different direction. So I have been aware for a long time that, that some of the people that I respect the most spiritually, when I'd ask them, what are you reading these days? What are you thinking about? What are you, what are you meditating on? What, what's your devotional practices right now? What, what is pulling you forward? That I would hear them say things like, you know, I have really been thinking about God's love. Or I've been focused on grace. Or I've just been thinking about the incarnation. And I always sort of go, huh, I sort of know about those things. Like, I'm, I'm in much deeper study than you are. I didn't say that, but that was sort of my thinking, like, God's love. Okay, I know. I've, I've looked at that. So uh, eventually I became aware they're getting something here that I'm not getting. 
And uh, I, I am aware, one of the things that you study in seminary, that there are these, there are stages of faith development. And, and uh, this comes up often. I lead a, uh, an ongoing study for skeptics. And it's a quiet thing, and, and you, you, you get invited. It's an invitation-only thing. You might not want to get invited to this. I, I basically say it's mostly, mostly men, and I send them a letter, and I say, look, I, I've seen you around a bit, and, and my, my take is that you're a, you're a good guy, and you're, but you're sort of taking one for the team, right? You're just here to audit the class. You're not really engaged, and you're here because somebody's making you come. I mean, it's your wife. It's your mom. It's, you know, it's somebody is, it's guilt. You're here for some reason other than this is helpful in pulling you forward. And uh, I want to offer you a chance to get into a small group. And then I say, and I'm aware that a small group sounds like a horrible idea to you. You're worried that one, your your ignorance of the Bible is going to be exposed. Two, you're going to be asked to pray out loud. Three, someone might ask you to share your feelings. And four, someone might cry. And I said, so I just want to assure you, none of those things are going to happen. Uh, you're not going to be embarrassed in any way. I'm not going to ask you to pray. I'm not going to ask you to share your feelings. And nobody cries in this. It's a sort of a grown-up look at faith. But then I say, look, so part of what, part of what you have to understand is that there are stages of belief. And this is belief in almost anything. So when we're little, when we're young, we just believe because our parents tell us to believe. So they say, this color is blue. Your name is Tommy. I'm your mom. I'm your dad. And we just believe there's a God who loves you. And we just believe. We don't know. We don't, we don't understand how things work. So you just accept things on the basis of your parents telling you. And then there's another stage in which you sort of transfer authority to a teacher or to a coach or to someone else. And they tell you what to believe. These are the rules of the game. This is how you play the clarinet. This is two plus two equals four. You just, you just, you're accepting things, not because you have thought them through. Now, I am making this really simple. Uh, David Weil, who was an executive pastor here for a number of years, now heads up our work in North Chicago. David Weil got a Ph.D. studying faith formation, right? And you get into terms like synthetic literal and mythic cosmic, all these different stages. And there's all kinds of different theories and lots of different stages of faith. The point is that there are a whole lot of people stop at this stage. And some call it stage two. In other theories, it's stage three where you believe some things and you feel like you own them, but you haven't really thought through them. And so you believe the, the Bears are better than the Packers. And if you're a Packer fan, you're a loser because only losers like the Packers, right? And, and Coke is better than Pepsi. And anybody can see that Coke is better than Pepsi. And what kind of, a, of, a, of an idiot would believe that Pepsi is better than Coke? Right? So you have passion, not necessarily a lot of thought, but you have passion around certain things that you believe. And lots of people never actually move past that stage of belief in anything. Some, often in college, move into another stage, and there's a transition. And this transition can take years, and it's very unsettling to say, well, maybe I'm not a Bears fan. 
Maybe I'm not into this. Maybe I, I don't know. What do I believe? Why do I believe this? Is there reason to believe this? And, and some people never move out of that transition. And a lot of people, and I say this, I go, look, it's good to ask these questions. But you've got a grown-up, graduate-level understanding of finance. And you've got a second-grade understanding of Jesus. <laughs> and that's not okay. Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, right, he's the most influential person who ever lived, he gives us the greatest ethical system we have, and he claims to be God. And if he's God, (laughs) then you ought to have more than a second-grade understanding of this, and you ought to have more than a third-grade objection to this. I understand that in your fraternity, somebody six beers into a discussion threw out some objection to Jesus, and and it, 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 it sent you sideways. Okay, we've probably got answers for that. So a lot of people stall, so I say, look, you got to move forward. All that to say, there's a final stage in all these theories. And the final stage, it's called different things, the final stage is often a stage of simplicity on the other, on the other side of complexity. And it's a stage of wonder and awe. And, and I think, and I don't want to claim I got to this stage, but I want to claim I sort of glimpsed it. And I was glimpsing it around... Jesus and and just understanding again I've 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 had some of these experiences where it's just it it goes deeper 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 and so in this series uh, and you shall call his name in this series we want to look at names of Jesus we want to look at titles of Jesus aspects of his character so there's there's a lot of basic names Jesus the Christ the Son of God the Savior. And then there's some names where we go, okay, he's the Lamb of God, he's the Lion of Judah, he's the Prince of Peace, he's the Son of Man, he's the Logos. And then there's a whole nother level where you go, he's the, the firstborn from the dead, he's the second Adam, he's the seed of woman. Right? And, and, and you can say, okay, and Jesus has, has pre-existence and, and Jesus has a dual nature. And, and Jesus is the incarnation. And all of these ideas, on the one hand, they're simple. On the other hand, upon further reflection, they just keep yielding more and more insight into who God is, the plan, God's love, his grace. And, and so my hope is that in this four-week series... We can sort of mine some of these things that almost certainly you have thought about before or heard about before. But there's more there. And, and today, on this Communion Sunday, I want us to think about the incarnation, which is, in one sense, the, the Christmas doctrine. Uh, or you might call it Advent. So if you want to sound a little bit more sophisticated or refined or spiritual or something, you can refer to Christmas is Advent. Advent is, uh, is, it comes from a Latin term, Adventus, uh, and, it, and it refers to waiting. And the Greek word is parousia, the, the waiting, the coming, the arrival. We're looking forward to something. And, and it all is part of the church's calendar. So as a rule, our lives are not informed by the church calendar. You know, December is not informed by 
Advent issues. It's informed by final exam schedules and, and football games and shopping hours and flight plans and all that other things. But there is a calendar that, that the church developed at least by 500 A.D., that, that said, uh, and, and this is still sort of embraced in more liturgical churches, and said, we're going to try and go through the life of Jesus every year. So we're going we're to catapult down the life of Jesus uh, into a single year, which means everything gets briefer. So the pregnancy of Mary is covered in four weeks instead of nine months. Which, you know, some of you might think that sounds like a good plan. A four-week pregnancy as opposed to nine months might be good. But you gotta, you gotta pull everything down. You get, you get the, the, the time of arrival, the time of Advent in which we are preparing and looking forward to the coming of Christ, remembering his first coming, but also with sort of hints of preparing ourselves for his second coming. That's the period of Advent. Now, it is not the biggest deal in the book. So the book is a book about Jesus, and, and uh, the Old Testament is pointing ahead to the New Testament where Jesus arrives. So the Old Testament sets things up with creation, fall, promise, and then we go to the New Testament for fulfillment. The big, the big meta-narrative, the big story that we're all a part of, Creation by God, introduction of sin, fall, the curse, the promise that God will send someone to fix the curse, to defeat evil, to, to win us back. And then you're reading through the Old Testament as the pieces are coming together towards that. Continue to wait for the fulfillment. The fulfillment doesn't happen until the New Testament. So we get this long buildup in the Old Testament. It's pointing to the New Testament. The New Testament, by and large, points to Jesus. And so it points to the Gospels, because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us the story of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts, which is the story of the church, and then all the letters that were written by Peter, Paul, James, John, all those things, they point back to Jesus, to the things that he taught, to the things that he did. So the whole Bible, the Old Testament is pointing to the New Testament, the New Testament is pointing to the Gospels. The Gospels are not pointing to the Incarnation so much. They start there. The Gospels point to Christ's death and his resurrection. That's the climax of the story. Easter is the climax of the story, not Christmas. Christmas is a celebration of the arrival of Jesus. So it is the incarnation. The word carnos in, in Latin means flesh. If you're a carnivore, you're a flesh eater, a meat eater. So the incarnation is when God becomes man, takes on human form. While remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. Not half God and half man, not God one minute and man the next and then back to God. Not God in human form, but not human character. Uh, like it's some photo op for God to just be here briefly, but he's not really. No, it's, it's, it is the incarnation is when God becomes man, Jesus who is 
who is eternal. There's never been a moment that Jesus didn't exist. Right? Our lives begin conception or begin at birth. Jesus has a virgin birth, not because there's some scandal about sex. Jesus has a virgin conception because he has pre-existed his life as a person. And so his birth, his, his conception is completely different than anyone else's. He is God. He is becoming also man. He is adding humanity to deity, the incarnation. And so the, the incarnation announces the, the celebration of the arrival of the hero of the story. So he is coming out onto stage We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, the hero is here. But, but that's not the hero actually being the hero. It's just the hero showing up. So the incarnation is not the greatest part of the story, but it is a very significant part of the story. So for the incarnation, I want us to look out of um, Paul's letter to the Philippians, the second chapter. And, and we're going to look at this, this incredible passage. This is the oldest, perhaps the oldest hymn that we have. So there were songs in the Old Testament. The book of Psalms is, off, is a book of songs. But in terms of a Christ-centered hymn, this passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, was a hymn being sung by the early church that Paul takes and puts into his letter. And, and it's significant for all kinds of reasons, um, not least of which it tells us about the nature of Christ. So it's, it's one of the highest Christological passages. It's a hymn. We call it the Carmen Christi. And, um, and it, it gives us a setup to Christ's incarnation. So I'm going to start reading um, in verse... Three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is Paul writing to the Philippians. He's in a prison in Rome. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each uh, to the interest of others. In our relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. So one of the shocking things about this passage is that it is perhaps the most one of the most significant passages about Jesus that we have, telling us about Christ's dual nature. We call it the hypostatic union. He's fully God and fully man. It's a a mystery just as much as the Trinity. This is a passage that reflects on it as much as anything. And it's not there (laughs) to teach us about Christ as much as it's there to call us to serve. Right. So we're being told about Christ, but we're basically being told about who Christ is as a setup to say, do the same thing that he's doing. Serve others. Put others ahead of yourself. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God. Okay, so I just want to say it again. Christ's life does not begin with his conception or birth. Christ is eternal. Christ is fully God. Never a moment that Jesus didn't exist. Jesus is equal to God the Father. 
The, 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 the second major creed of the church, the first creed is the Apostles' Creed, second creed is the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was established to, to say no to those who wanted to say, Jesus is almost equal to God the Father, but ever so slightly not completely equal. And the argument, no, he's fully God, present at creation. So I've shared this before, but when many times the churches will sing the glory of Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning. Now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. It was a fight song. It was, it was a fight song against the Arians that were saying there was a time when it was just God the Father and then God the Father had God the Son. And they said, no, as it was in the beginning, <laughs> glory be to God the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has always existed in heaven, in the glory of heaven, the Shekinah glory of God, the wonderful majesty, the brilliance of heaven. Jesus is fully God. But... He did not, uh, in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped, something to be held on to, right? He does not consider the glory and rights and honors and privileges of being God something that he is going to clutch on to. Instead, says, um, he, he emptied himself. Or he made himself nothing. The King James says he made himself of no reputation. Other translations will say he veiled his glory. And this is, this is what inspired Charles Wesley in, in the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. You know, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. So pleased as a man to give up heaven, he's veiled his glory, the the incarnate, the God-man. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. So he veils. We don't understand it. Somehow he, he, he empties himself of some of his glories. He remains fully God. The, the, the Chalcedonian Creed, which is the, the third creed, so you got the Apostles' Creed and you got the Nicene Creed. The next big issue the church takes on are those that say Jesus is God, everybody equal to God the Father, but he was not fully man. He just looked like a man. Or he was, he was a little bit of a ghost or something like that, but he wasn't fully man. And so the, they say, look, we don't understand it. In the Chalcedonian definition, we don't understand it. We know that his, the two natures exist perfect in perfect unity without mixture, without division, without confusion, without separation. We can't, we can't tell you how it works, but we know that he's fully God and fully man, but he, he doesn't hold on to his glory. He empties himself and, and he comes down, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Nobody starts higher than, than Christ. Nobody starts higher than Christ. Nobody goes lower than Christ, right? So he, he empties himself. He becomes not just God, but God and man. He's given up his glory. And then not just a man, but a servant. And the word is slave, a bond servant. A, and not just a servant, but a servant who will go to his death. And not just one that will go to his death, but will go to his death on the cross, 
So, so Jesus just descends in order to serve us. Right? And that, again, that's the argument that Paul is using here. Right? Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not hold on to that, but he became one of us and he descended and, and becomes one that will take on our sin. So this passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is rich and profound, and, and we, can, we can look at it. When I, when I was preaching through the book of Philippians, I took three weeks on this verse. And that's because you can look at it just in terms of what it teaches us about service and humility. And you can look at it in terms of what it teaches us uh, about Christ's nature, the incarnation. You can look at it, what it teaches us about the glory and the exaltation. Because the next passage, says, because he does this, right? He starts here and he goes here. Therefore God will highly exalt him and bestow upon him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you can you'll look at this passage, this hymn, and, and look at what the, the celebration, the glory, the magnification of Christ in heaven. There's all kinds of things here. I want us to just think about the incarnation. And I want to suggest that just thinking about one aspect of Christ and going deeper, it just it continues to yield. So, for instance, several things that emerge out of the incarnation of Christ. If you understand it, to the extent that we can understand it, it becomes easy to believe everything else. (laughs) When people say to me, you don't really believe that Jesus walked on water. I mean, you don't really believe that he calmed the storm. You don't really believe that he multiplied the kids' food, right? I mean, we're grown-ups here, right? These things are not the way things happen. They say, oh, yeah, no, I do believe those things. And I go, those are easy. I mean, those aren't challenges. Having chosen to believe in the incarnation, (laughs) that Jesus is God, the idea that God could walk on water, the idea that God could calm a storm, the idea that God could raise somebody from the dead, that's easy. I mean, once, once you figure out the incarnation, once you figure out the claim, once you go, yeah, that actually makes sense to me, given who he is, then these other pieces are, are easy. Additionally, once you get the incarnation, you have hope. Oh, there is a God who actually shows up. And Jesus is God. And that means that there is a God who loves me and has come to to care for me. That means that I actually do get eternal life. I do get forgiveness of sins. Once you get the incarnation, you go, okay, I've got hope. Yesterday I was visiting a guy from the church uh, who's um, in intensive care and he might get out of intensive care, but his days are numbered, and he's the first to say that. And uh, yet, meeting with him and praying with him, he's full of hope. He's full of excitement. He's full of the sense of God's care for him and, and peace. Because he goes, yeah, I, I get to go. I get to go. I get to be free from, I get to leave this land of the dying. We think of it as the land of the living. But no, I get to leave the land of the dying and go to the land of the living. 
They get to go to be with, with Christ. The incarnation, it reaffirms that. The incarnation reminds us that we actually can approach God. Now just think about this for a second. In the Old Testament, you could not approach God. So Abraham, God is, a, is this smoking furnace. And, and for Israel, God is a pillar of fire. And for Job, God is a hurricane. You can't approach God. Moses wants to see God's face and he's told, no, you can't do that and live, right? So he's put in a, in a little crevice of the, the cliff and God covers it and he moves past. And then Moses gets to look at the backside of God moving away. And so... You can't approach God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God shows up. <laughs> he shows up as a baby. You can approach babies. They can't get away. He shows up as a baby. And we have seen the glory of God. Right? The one and only, the Son of God. We can approach God. <clears throat> There's more. I'll just end with this one. The idea of the incarnation of God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, makes perfect sense then as we come to our salvation. So we have the perfect sacrifice. It's not an animal. It's not a placeholder. He is fully human, fully able to represent me. He's he's perfectly like me, but he's also... God. His death is of infinite value. And so he can die for my sins and he can die for your sins. Right? <laughs> Look, there's another half dozen items that, that just reflecting on the fact that God became man changes everything. So during this Christmas season, I want you to understand Jesus is a better gift than you realize. And it will take us eternity to figure out, if we can even in that, how much better of a gift he is. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for showing up, for setting aside the rights and glory and honor that is rightfully yours, for not considering equality with God something to be clutched to, but for our sake, showing up and becoming a person, and not just a person, but a slave, and not just a slave, but a slave that would go to his death, and not just death, but death on a cross, to, to satisfy the demands of the law, to keep perfect justice, and to demonstrate at the same time your great love for us. So we thank you, and we praise you, and we pray that during this Advent season, as we think about your first arrival and all that is packed into that. And as we look forward to your second arrival, your return, and we think about that, uh, we, would, we would have a growing understanding of what a great gift you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.